Good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Weekly for Saturday, October 21st, 2023. And our top story today, why stock market investors are fixated on the 10-year Treasury yield. And joining me now to help break it all down from the NASDAQ, Jane King. She's a financial journalist. Jane, it's always great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us in the program this morning. Oh, thanks. Great to be here, Jeffrey. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk markets, and then I want to get to the Treasury yield and the ten-year Treasury in a second. But uh, let's talk about the week that was in the stock market. How how did things go from your perspective? Well, all of a sudden, interest rates are a big concern again. So as you mentioned, the Treasury yield. So uh, that went up this week. We had a big speech yesterday by the Fed chair. And Jerome Powell um, said inflation is still too high. So he didn't say we're going to raise interest rates again. But I think you can, you know, come to that conclusion that that's certainly a likelihood if he talks about interest rates still being too high. And that's just spooked the markets this week. And it is October which we often do see a lot of nervousness in the markets in October anyway. It's Oktoberfest. No, I'm just kidding. And it's Halloween. So that's probably why things get a little scary. Jane, let's go back to the 10-year Treasury yield. Um, And I guess I've been doing a lot of reading. I know you do a ton of reading and you're a a student of the market. But it says U.S. stock investors facing a confluence of challenges with the benchmark 10-year Treasury yield poised to possibly break 5% for the first time in 16 years. And I'm trying to figure out why this matters. I, I think I understand why, you know, short-term versus long-term rates. Um, but your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, if we've got interest rates going up, that's going to slow things down. I mean, it's amazing how much interest rates affect everything. Um, they affect consumers' purchases, consumer psychology. They invest, you know, in, in distressed debt and companies that are on the verge, and they've all of a sudden got to pay more for debt. And, um, you know, and then investors come in and swoop in on those. And, I mean, it just ripples throughout everything, these interest rates through the economy. So it really spooked uh, the markets. We did see the mortgage rates, at least according to Mortgage News Daily, above 8% this week. So, and, you know, there's a few different entities that follow these mortgage rates, but they're all right around eight or just below eight. We haven't been there since the summer of 2000. So we're definitely in a rising interest rate environment. Um, Looks like we're going to be doing more government spending, the president asking for more money for wars. um, And uh, the labor market's still tight. So that's an inflationary scenario. Yeah. Uh, Jane, I was going to ask you, you talked about the president making a little office address and asking Congress for money. If the Congress can figure out who's in charge, that's a whole nother issue. Um, <laughs> they got to get the money. But but in all seriousness, how has this conflict, this war, has it creeped into the market? And I haven't seen it really in oil. Like you would expect something typically, you know, 15 years ago when there has been an issue in the Middle East, you see oil price per barrel yeah. spike. But has that war, and obviously there's a humanitarian part of that, but has that war really creeped into, I guess, what investors are looking at? Not as much as you'd expect. We saw an immediate reaction. Like, so the attacks in Israel were on a Saturday, and then Sunday night when the markets opened, oil was way up, stocks are way down. But midway through Monday, all that kind of settled. We focused back on interest rates again. So that is certainly first and foremost. But if this would escalate, I think we'd start to see some more problems. Uh, the U.S. in the past uh, hasn't been able to, you know, produce as much oil as we have today. So we can kind of fill those needs. Um, before the Middle East, you know, we relied on the Middle East for 
pretty much all of our oil needs. Now that's changed. So um, there was some um, uh, some sanctions put on Russian oil this week. We did see oil get a pop from that. So it's kind of weird how things react. Um, but the market doesn't seem too worried about this escalating yet. But if you listen to the news, it doesn't sound good. No, it doesn't sound good. But again, they're trying to drive clicks and drive people to, you know, bad news, I guess, sells better than good news. I like to think on our network, we try to talk about just the facts and good news. Uh, and, and Jane, last question. I mean, you have, yes, you've you had the, the war in Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine going on for so long. I wonder if that has kind of created um, like, OK, yeah, another conflict. Um, it, we'll just get through it. I mean, do you think that that has some levels of impact on the psychology of investors or, or am I... Am I just kind of overreaching here? You know, they're, yeah, they're just different yeah. conflicts. Well, it seems like when when Ukraine first happened, there was a lot of just shock and, you know, a, a lot of just sadness about it and what was going on. And we were following it very closely. And then it just, we moved on to other things. And I feel like the same thing is happening with Israel. Um, although this one seems to be impacting the U.S. a little bit more with all the protests. And it's got this, you know, college element to it and there's just a lot more debate about it um again i don't think the markets are reacting too much to it but yesterday you know we saw a, a drone from yemen get shot down by a u.s navy ship i mean all of a sudden yemen is involved uh, the hoodies in yemen so this could very easily escalate and it's definitely worth keeping an eye on because I, I feel like the markets could react pretty quickly if something great, bigger would happen yeah, well, there's a 24-hour news cycle that has an impact clearly on market. Jane King, always great to see you. Great analysis as always. Thanks so much for joining us, and we look forward to catching up with you again next week. Thanks, Jeffrey. See you next week. Thanks, Jane. Great to see you. Thanks for sharing your perspective. And when we come back, we'll take a look at some of our best segments for the week. You're going to want to stay tuned right here. Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses. I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Welcome back. It was a great week of great shows, of great topics, of course, 
great guests. We kicked off the week with a look at the worst financial gifts to give your kids. Let's take a look. Well, I don't actually have a problem with a car as a gift. I mean, you might not want to spoil your kids. I get that. I think most 16-year-olds should be driving their parents' car, not their own car. But what I'm talking about with that point is giving somebody a vehicle that still has to have payments made. A lot of parents think it's a great idea to go down and kind of put a down payment down and sign for it and then leave you with the payments. And I don't think that's a very good gift to saddle a young person with a series of payments they might have to make for as much as 84 months. You know, the, the honest truth, I think, is that the combination of financial literacy and financial discipline is so rare in our society that if you have both of them, you can kind of consider it a superpower. So, no, I don't think most parents are financially literate, and so they can't teach that to their children. That would be a great gift to give your child, financial literacy. Well, kind of like giving a car that still requires payments. You know, giving a child a whole life insurance policy that requires payments uh, is really giving them a liability, something they got to make payments on every month. Um, you know, parents think they're doing a big favor. They're like, well, what if they become uninsurable or, you know, here's something that, uh, you know, can compound for decades. But the truth is almost no kid needs a, a death benefit on them, much less a permanent death benefit on them. These policies are almost never big enough to really meet a life insurance need for a child once they, they grow into an adult. And, uh, and then the child is stuck with trying to figure out what am I going to do with this? Am I going to cancel it and take the cash value, which is probably what they ought to do most of the time, or am I going to you know, continue to make payments for two or three more decades? And I think putting them in that position isn't a very nice thing to do. You're much better off, quite honestly, putting that money in a 529 account for them, uh, just investing it in a custodial brokerage account for them. And they'll likely have a whole lot more money and won't be faced with this difficult decision of what to do with this policy you've been making, you know, $50 payments a month on for the last 20 years. This one, again, is similar to the car that hasn't yet been paid for, to the whole life insurance policy that hasn't yet been paid for. A timeshare is an awful lot like a down payment, which is the purchase price, and ongoing payments, which are the annual fees. And after a few years, it's not unusual for those annual fees to be substantial, sometimes 40% or more of the original purchase price. And so, again, the parents think they're giving their kids an asset, while in reality, they're giving them a liability. Now they're going to feel like they have to vacation there. They can't afford the annual fees. You know, maybe they're not in the same position their parents were when they bought this. Uh, then they go to try to sell it. And if you've ever tried to sell a timeshare, it can be incredibly difficult. There are all kinds of timeshares available on the market for $1 that won't sell because nobody wants to pick up those annual fees on them. And so you're really just saddling uh, your child with something. In fact, a lot of people would prefer not even to inherit these things when the parents die, they'd rather you gave it to charity or, or gave it back to the person who sold it to you in the first place. And of course, you know, there's a lot of guilt for not feeling happy about getting this gift from your parents. Next up, we discussed what you need to know about cochlear implants. Let's take a look. Um, a cochlear implant is uh, an electronic device that is designed for people whose hearing loss um, has either progressed or in the case of a child um, born with um, a hearing loss that is so severe uh, that it's not helped sufficiently by hearing aids. And I say sufficiently because sometimes people do benefit somewhat from hearing aids, 
um, but not enough. And that's um, that's at the point when hearing aids no longer work. And for most people with hearing loss, hearing aids are absolutely helpful and allow them to stay connected with, with life. Um, but a cochlear implant bypasses the damaged parts of the ear and sends an electronic signal that is um, passed uh, between the device on the outside, which is like a small computer, to a receiver that's been placed inside the cochlea of the ear by a surgeon, a specially trained ENT surgeon. Um, and that signal is picked up and in time, um, the brain learns to interpret that as meaningful sound. Um, so it's a it's something that we learn to use over time. Most people are not perfectly adept with it in the first weeks after they're activated, but over time um, they become um, very adept at using that signal. So yeah. that's essentially what it is, and it it has an internal component that's put in during the surgery. Uh, and the external component, which is where the little computer is, and it's worn um, on the ear or sometimes on the head. There's different versions of it. Um, and that amazingly, um, it, it takes those parts of speech that you hear, um, pitch and um, volume and rhythm and all the components of speech and all sounds, and then changes that into a series of electrical electronic impulses. So that's what it is in a nutshell. It's an amazing device. It's the first time that science has been able to replace a sense that we lost. You know, so if you you go blind or you're born blind we can't restore sight really i mean we're starting to starting to get there um taste can't replace um taste um and so it it is an, an amazing um device that lets the deaf hear absolutely um it's um, a device that we use across the continuum of age um, we now uh, test children for hearing loss when they're born. It's called newborn hearing screening. And in the United States, we're, we're testing 95% of children at birth. And so well, we are able to identify a, a child who's born deaf uh, or, or any level of hearing loss at birth. So right now, the FDA guideline is, is uh, nine months for cochlear implants. So children can get uh, a cochlear implant at nine months. And, and in some cases, um, some clinics are providing it earlier even than that, depending on the child and the need, et cetera. Um, and then sometimes the hearing loss in a child progresses or happens later. So a child can receive this at any age, um, teen years, 20s, 30s, your age. Um, and actually, um, recently we worked with the Center for Medicare and Medicaid services to expand uh, candidacy criteria for older adults under Medicare. Um, so now the criteria are very similar, whether somebody is covered by Medicare or covered by private insurance. And we've implanted people that are 95 and up. 
So it's really a matter for an older person if they have any other health issues and if they can benefit. It, and it, it does involve um, a fairly careful candidacy criteria to ensure that the individual will benefit more from a cochlear implant than he or she is um, benefiting from hearing aids. Um, and people often get stymied because they don't know how to start the process. Um, and the people that are involved in cochlear implantation are specially trained. And there are what's called cochlear implant clinics. And um, hopefully what happens is um, someone who is wearing hearing aids, uh, let's just take the example of an adult, and he or she is, is wearing two well-fit hearing aids and still having great difficulty understanding speech, not being able to really use the phone, um, having difficulty in meetings, um, needing to always have the captions on on TV, uh, turning the sound up on TV. That's what family members often notice. Um, so even though they're wearing well-fit hearing aids, they're, they're still having difficulty. Um, so in that case, what we hope happens is their uh, hearing care professional um, makes a referral for them to be evaluated at a cochlear implant center. And that process involves um, uh, speech testing in a sound booth wearing well-fit hearing aids. So we test somebody with their amplification on because we want to see how well they're doing. And then it also involves, and, and that's done by an audiologist who has special training. Um, and then there's also a medical component of it. So they're also evaluated by um, an ENT surgeon who has special training in cochlear implantation. Um, and so those two pieces of information are very important. Sometimes, depending on the individual, they'll want someone to also be evaluated uh, by a psychologist or someone who um, can evaluate whether the person has realistic expectations and will be able to follow through appropriately. And that process is similar, whether it, regardless of age. You know, if it's a, it's a baby, they go through that same process of being tested. The evaluation by the audiologist is a bit different because you can't say words to a baby and have them repeat those. But there's other ways of testing a small child um, to ensure that they're an appropriate candidate audiologically um, and medically. And so that that's the way the process works. And it has expanded tremendously in the years since I received a cochlear implant, which was 30 years ago. And there were at that time, relatively few centers that offered this. Um, but now um, we have many, many centers around the United States. Um, someone could come on our website and we have a, a map, a click, clickable map and you can click on your state. Um, and then see where there's a CI center that's closest um, to you. And so, wow, none of that was available when I was going through the process. Just think there was no internet, um, difficulty of finding out information about where to go. I was lucky to have a, a great support network that helped me uh, through the process. But now with the internet, people can really find that information out themselves. Um, 
And if if I may encourage people to look at our website, which is www.acialliance.org, and then you could see more details than I've given and also look at that map to see where somebody could go to pursue an evaluation. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Weekly. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, drop us a line. And don't forget, for all the latest curated news and lifestyle, wellness, finance, tech, so much more in all in one place, check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content? Then visit our website. We're back again tomorrow with another edition of BRN Sunday. I'll be joined by the legal eagles, David Levine, Kevin Walsh, and Oliver Rennick of the Schwab Network to break it all down. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes. Now is your opportunity to co-create content around any topic on the first lifestyle and wellness network. Reach a global audience through our platform and co-own exclusive branded content. All of our programs are available on demand and also as audio-only podcasts so you can take us on the go. Broadcast Retirement Network, available anytime, anywhere, and on any device.